Hello, it's your host, Kat Walsh, and you're listening to another episode of Trip On This. This podcast is for mature audiences and is not suitable for young children. Trip On This is intended for entertainment purposes only, and we do not condone the use of illegal substances. Enjoy the show. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Trip On This. It was such a pleasure speaking with my next guest, Dustin Robinson. Dustin is the founding partner for Mr. Cannabis Law, which is a full-service law firm dedicated exclusively to cannabis and psychedelics. Dustin has also created his own nonprofit called Mr. Psychedelic Law, which is focused on legal reform in Florida, and has also recently started a psychedelic venture capitalist firm called Eater Investments. During this episode, we talk about the future of psychedelics, where he sees it going from legalization to decriminalization. We talk about the commercialization of things, how investors are getting into the psychedelic space, how we can create a world where there's still equity and affordability for others. We talk about his own experiences with psychedelics and why he's so passionate about this work. I am very excited for everyone to listen to it. It is incredibly informative, and I think you guys will enjoy it. A few things before the episode begins. If you're not following me on socials, please do so. At triponthis underscore pod. Again, it's at triponthis underscore pod for Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, and backslash triponthispod for Facebook. If you are enjoying this show and you want to help support your girl, please send it out to your friends, your family, your loved ones like, subscribe, do all the things. It is so helpful for me to get the word out and grow this podcast. And with that, please enjoy this next episode with Dustin Robinson. All right, Dustin, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Trip On This. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So you are doing a lot of very cool stuff in the psychedelic space. You are a psychedelic and cannabis attorney. I know you just started your own venture capitalist fund for psychedelics. You uh, work on the advocacy side. You're a busy man. Thank you. Thank you for being here with us today. Not a problem. I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'm never too busy for you. So anytime you want to have I me, on, I'll, I'll make the time. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So let's get into, first of all, a psychedelic lawyer. We don't hear that very often. What does it entail to be a psychedelic lawyer and what got you into this space? Yeah, well, if you told me three years ago I'd be a psychedelic lawyer, I probably wouldn't have believed you. So kind of a surprise to me as well that I ended up in this position. But really, it all started kind of, I guess, with my cannabis journey. I I actually started off my career. My background is I'm an attorney and a CPA. After I exited one of my companies, um, I was planning to take a year off and ended up running into some friends with a cannabis license, helped them with a transaction. They ended up referring me to another real estate cannabis transaction. I was starting to get a lot of different cannabis referrals. So I started my law firm that at the time was exclusively focused on the cannabis space. And then a lot of my cannabis clients wanted to get into psychedelics. So mainly it was the doctors that I represent that were reaching out here in Florida. It's a, it's a strictly medical cannabis market. Yep. So I represent a lot of the doctors here in Florida and I represent several of the clinics. And those doctors wanted to conduct research and they also wanted to launch ketamine clinics. So kind of got involved on that end, they started sending me the research. And the more I read about it, the more I realized that there was just extreme efficacy, at least in the preliminary research around these compounds, way more so than cannabis. Cannabis 
has a lot of anecdotal evidence, but really not a whole lot of research to support some of the claims people are making, at least from a medical perspective. So I'm kind of, I guess, maybe by nature, maybe by my, my education, I'm kind of a man of data and science. So when I started reading some of that research, I got really excited about it and got really deep into it, started really reading everything I could get my hands on about the different research that was out there. And ultimately, uh, after representing several of these these doctors in in different deals and and setting up their clinics and setting up research programs, decided to launch my nonprofit at the end of 2019. And that's really uh, when the advocacy side started in it. So really, the the legal and the advocacy side, it kind of just happened very naturally and, and organically. But what really drew me into it was the strong research and the efficacy behind these compounds. Mm, love that. And so, I, of course, the research and the efficacy is going to be a big part of it. But my question to you then is, have you actually dabbled in psychedelics now that you are representing the interests of those that are getting into it? A little R&D? Yeah, well, I had to do my R&D to get some street <laughs> treads. So so actually, I had never taken a psychedelic compound up until about, I would say, a little over 20 months ago. So when my doctors were calling me about it, I was just kind of caught by surprise. And, and, and quite honestly, I carried the stigma that society carries relating to psychedelics. I thought they were, you know, bad for you. I'm very much into to, to physical and mental health and wellness. And I always looked at them as being something that was debilitating. And mm-hmm. so obviously after reading all this research, it sparked my curiosity. And a few months into like reading the research and working with these doctors, I decided it was time for me to have my own journey to understand what this was all about. So my first experience was with psilocybin and I was just totally surprised uh, about what I was feeling. Um, really, you know, what I was reading in the research, I was able to actually experience in my own brain. So neural pathways being open, neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, all those things, you feel it happening in your brain and and, and contrary to you know them being debilitating they were actually mind expanding yeah. and and really my problem solving skills felt way stronger oneness with the universe understanding of nature all those things really started to make a lot of sense to me all the stuff that I had been reading for for months about and it was quite a transformational experience and what was really unique about you know my experience and what's so unique about psychedelics in general is that it's not like you need to take these compounds every day or every right. month it's really just one experience, that profound impact you have during the experience really can be carried forward into your everyday life for for months, years, decades thereafter. So that was kind of my first experience. And then after that, I did uh, dabble and and, and do some R&D on a couple different compounds. And, And quite honestly, all my experiences, they haven't really been very much recreational. I'm very much about mind expansion. I believe that these compounds have significant potential, not only for resolving very serious indications like depression, PTSD, anxiety, but also just mind expansion and and, and enhancing your, your level of consciousness and understanding of the universe. So everything I've done, I don't really see it much as recreational as much as just using it as a mental health tool. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I What really stuck out to me, and I think this is going to be your story is going to be important for a lot of people in that having going in with the stigma and going in wanting the research and wanting to not just rushing in look so there's people like me who have always been a little guess on more on the adventurous side of things and but there's a lot of people that aren't and so many people can benefit from it and i think taking the approach that you took to it which is not rushing in and reading the research and the science and 
getting as comfortable as you can and being like, right, this is, there's no physical downside to this. And I'm only reading the good stuff and, and not rushing into anything, I think is really the key for a lot of people to have the experience that you're having. Instead of, I had another guest call it like, instead of creating FOMO for people, which I mean, I'm sure it's happening a lot with how much is going on with psychedelics, but taking your time and waiting until you're called. And I think for me too, while there's a lot of incredible and beautiful emphasis on, on mental health and depression, all these things, you know, for me, I wouldn't have been categorized. I, I have never been, I would say like medicated or anything like that. But what it showed me after I did psychedelics was that I was in a low grade depression my entire life. And I had no idea. It was yeah. just the baseline of what I thought I knew. I wasn't connected. Like you were saying with that oneness and the expansion and the connectedness to my surroundings and nature. I just, I was just kind of autopiloting my way through life thinking like, all right, I live for the weekend and I'm, you know, I got good days and whatever. And it really showed like what an emphasis it could be on what they, I don't like this term, but what they call like healthy normals is what they call it in the, uh, in the clinical trials. And it just shows like, yeah, we can all improve, right? Like it's not just necessarily from, from a low point, although it's great that it can, that it can get there. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's funny because when I first, you mentioned I have a fund and when I first started pitching my fund as part of my pitch, I would talk about, you know, how I never, you know, how I don't have a particular indication, but, you know, I understand I've read the research, you know, and I don't have, you know, mental health issues. And very quickly after, you know, taking, you know, having my experiences, I recognize we all have mental health issues. Yeah. No one is perfect, you know, and I, and I realized how silly, honestly, I sounded and, and naive I sounded on those calls. So, just to like, it, it goes right with what you're saying is that, you know, it, it helps you understand that we all can get better. You know, mm-hmm. we all have bad days and there's ways, there's tools out there such as psychedelics and to be used in conjunction with other stuff, breath work, meditation, yeah. good diet, all those things. They all come together and collectively form your, not only your physical health, but, but also your mental health. They really do work together. We're all suffering in some sort of way. I don't mean to be like a downer, but it's important that people yeah. recognize, you know, I, I've always been super positive. Oh, I'm good. I'm healthy. I'm this, that, and the other. The, the reality is we all have our challenges and we can all get better. And I think these compounds have really done a lot of just tremendous things for people far beyond just the, the indications they're able to address. Absolutely. Absolutely. So with the excitement around psychedelics right now, what do you see for, I'm going to put in three different buckets decriminalization in this country, legalization in this country and commercialization in this country. Like where do we, where do you kind of see things going here? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's important for your viewers to understand the difference between decriminalization and legalization. So decriminalization is generally just, just saying that it's the lowest priority for that respective city or state, which whichever is, is decriminalizing. It doesn't actually make it not criminal. Right. So, you know, cities like Denver, Santa Cruz, Oakland, Ann Arbor, these cities that have decriminalized, it's still criminal, not only from a federal perspective still, but it's even still criminal from a state and city perspective. It's just that they're not going to allocate resources to enforcing it. Legalization is actually legalizing it and creating some sort of commercial framework for people to actually partake in the commercial side of it, yeah. with, you know, buying yeah. and selling and producing. And there's kind of two kind of frameworks that are that are happening right now on a commercialization side. One is just the FDA pharmaceutical approach, which is mm-hmm. doing it the right, the federal legal yep. pathways, the, the legal way where you're taking it through clinical trials and getting a psychedelic medicine approved for a particular indication. And there's 
an explosion of companies that are entering into clinical trials relating to psychedelic medicines for different indications. The other one is kind of following the similar track to cannabis, where even though it's federally legal, some of the states, such as Oregon, passed Measure 109 that created a commercialized framework that allows for these compounds to be bought and sold. Now, there's a two-year rulemaking period for Oregon, so it's not currently yeah. allowed. Um, so, so, you know, there's a lot of different aspects to this. But what I see happening right now where I see like the biggest opportunity is really on the and, and where my main focus is from an investment perspective is really on the drug development side of things. Mm. The These compounds have tremendous potential for for its various indications. And, you know, my my long-term view and what I'd like to see happen is, you know, these compounds are available to everyone, not just yeah. for people with indications. Yeah. But the reality is, is in, in society, we have to prioritize things. And it's important that my highest priority is helping the people that really, truly, absolutely need it. And those are people with treatment-resistant depression, major yeah. depressive disorder, PTSD, and a whole list of other mental health and behavioral health indications. So let's get the research on that. Let's prove that out. And then let's try to use that research to better support the concept that we could all collectively enhance our state of consciousness and mental health with these particular medicines. Yeah, amen to that. Do you think that the psychedelic industry is going to take a similar path like it did with cannabis? Basically, kind of what you're saying starts medical, we're doing the medical thing, then it goes to medical cards. And then we hit a moment where we're like, this is legalized. This is more, I don't know, recreational. <laughs> I don't know yeah, if that's think, the proper think, term, but yeah, well, you know, it's funny in in like the cannabis space, they use the word recreational or adult adult use. In in the psychedelic space, it's really more they use the terms like entheogenic or spiritual, mm -hmm. right? It's really not these compounds really aren't meant to be used recreationally. Even even if it's not medical, you're using them for some spiritual or entheogenic reason, or at least that's how they should be should be used, in my opinion. But, you know, right now I see that that's relatively far off. I think what we're going to see is mainly the pharmaceutical play rolling out. And I think, you know, that's going to take time. FDA yeah. clinical trials take several years. I believe MDMA right now is in, in phase three. I believe that will probably be FDA approved and commercialized by the end of 2023, possibly but even by the end of 2022. So is in phase two clinical trials. I believe that will be FDA approved and commercialized probably by the end of 2024 mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. We have DMT, 5-MeO DMT. Yeah. There's all these different compounds being studied. And I think really we're going to see that pharmaceutical approach really being rolled out simultaneous with that we are seeing, like I mentioned, Oregon roll out their own frameworks. California has a bill. I filed a bill in Florida through my nonprofit. Last legislative session, we have a new bill we're going to be filing in this next legislative session in Florida. I'm actually out here in Colorado right now. We actually met with a group of policy advisors that are actually working on a bill here in Colorado. So we're going to see a lot of bills out there in different states. It's going to take a good amount of time. And, and the way most of these frameworks are rolling out is quite different from cannabis, even on the state side, is they're still requiring, even in Oregon, they're requiring that these compounds are, are administered at a licensed service center. Right. So unlike right. cannabis, where you pick it up from a retail shop and you're actually required to consume it at home, under the, the framework that's being rolled out right now in Oregon, for example, you actually have to go to an actual center where it's administered for you. So mm -hmm. it's not really like you're going and buying, you know, mushrooms from a retail store yeah. and then taking them. Yeah. Do you think that's going to be across the board? Because I don't think the bill in California talks anything about trip centers. I know that's just a small possession legalization bill. Is that, for instance, like what you're doing in Denver, is it more also around a trip center model or 
is it closer to kind of like the framework or can you say, is it closer to the framework around like California where it's more just about, you know, small amounts of possession, not obviously like retail necessarily, but. Yeah. So I can't speak to like, you know, specific bills in, in the, in different States, but um, the way I see it be, I see it being rolled out is generally through it being done at licensed service centers simultaneous with that, Oregon actually passed measure 110, which decriminalized all these compounds. So possession and use under measure 110 is allowed. So what that means is that under measure 110, you could actually grow your own mushrooms technically and consume them at your home. You just can't buy and sell them. Right. So unless you're, you have a license through, through the state, keep in mind under the Oregon framework, still federally illegal, similar right. to cannabis. So, so, you know, I, I think really the, it's the, the it, it's probably even in the FDA world, these compounds are being approved to be administered at a clinic, which is a complete paradigm shift mm-hmm. to how mental health is addressed currently by a psychiatrist right now, you know, you should go see a psychiatrist. They prescribe you an SSRI or a benzo. You go to the pharmacy you go home and you take it for the next few months and then you come back and see your pharmacist. Yeah. Under this new paradigm with the FDA, they're requiring that these psychedelic compounds are administered at the facility. And I think that the the prudent thing to do and the, and the responsible thing to do is at least in the beginning to put up these safeguards and require them to be done at a particular facility because it's so the dose set and setting are extremely important, right? Mm-hmm. There's these are very powerful compounds. But when used incorrectly with the wrong dose or the wrong set or the wrong setting, yeah. they can not, you know, bad things could happen. Look, you're, you're not going to see people ODing on psilocybin and stuff like that. You know, you don't really see people addicted to psilocybin or LSD. They're not highly addictive compounds, but certainly if you take too much of them, you know, you're just not going to have a very good trip. Yeah, I think that's a good point about, at least in the beginning, I mean, obviously as someone who has benefited from psychedelics, not obviously in a trip zone or anything like that, but I think a slow progression of creating really safe showing almost like the trip center is kind of showing like creating that safe container for people showing the way in which it could be done. And, and then people are going to do whatever they're doing. And, and obviously there's going to be a little bit of trial and error during this time. Yeah, and, I think, and, and, and minimizing that is going to be the, the important part, right? And the challenge is, is figuring out what that container should look like. And that's right. what a lot of the, they're, they're trying to figure out in Oregon during this rulemaking period, they're trying to figure out what what is that container. There's this big debate whether it should be only doctors could administer this or do you not need a higher degree, right? I mean, right now, a lot of these compounds are being administered by by shamans, non-medical yeah. practitioners. And there's kind of a big push for not requiring that someone, you know, is a licensed therapist or doctor or whatever it might be. So there's all these questions on on what this container really should look like. And, yeah. you know, those are kind of the things that we're working on on some of these different bills and resolutions. Yeah. I was going to say, what do you, what do you think is going to be the biggest hurdle to just psychedelic psychedelics coming to the public right now? Like what is the biggest thing that could block the movement? It's stigma. I mean, I think it's the stigma, you know, like I said, just uh, not too long ago, I carried that stigma with myself, right? So I'm, I'm able to relate to some of these different legislators and, and lawmakers yeah. when, you know, they think, oh, this is the most dangerous thing in the world. And, you know, this is going to be like the opioid epidemic. And, you know, I, I was there and, and and now I realize how how silly that sounds, you know, comparing psychedelics to opioid. Actually, there's a lot of research right now proving out that psychedelic medicines could be extremely efficacious for solving addiction, actually. Yeah. And 
And so, so it's quite the opposite. So I think breaking down that stigma, which really just requires, you know, education and awareness. And that's why I spend a lot of time talking on different panels. I actually do a monthly psychedelic panel at the Soho House um, where we talk about psychedelics and really just try to break that stigma. And my, my nonprofit is is constantly putting on different events just to kind of raise awareness and, and answer people's questions and educate them so that they're you know, when they are rolled out or if people do decide to partake in, in psychedelics, that they're doing it in a responsible manner. Yeah, that's exactly. It's so interesting that you say that because that's exactly what this podcast is about is like when I was thinking about my why when I was so called to make this, I was just thinking I'm like, this is about and for me, it was really important that I don't I don't think I personally like look like the stereotype, right, or like a persona of someone who is like a big psychedelic advocate in this and that. And I wanted to really bring on people like yourself and just a variety of different types of people that you would, that are so unexpected, that are so articulate and got it together. And they're doing amazing things in the world and really trying to break the, that stereotype and that stigma and say like, that's not that sixties, 1960s counterculture vibe. Like, yeah, sure. That could still be around. Like, that's fine. But like, that's not the story of today. Today is this is a tool and and I'm I'm glad to hear you say it. And it it also helps me because I'm just like, it's part of my mission to help educate like you're doing as well with your panels and your advocacy group. So that's very cool. So my, one of my next, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Now I was just going to say, thank you for helping break the stigma. Yeah. No, I mean, this is, these, these are the things we need to do. We need podcasts, we need panels, we need events. And so all these these things are, are very important to the movement. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of my other questions for you is right now, there's a lot of talk, especially on the advocacy side around access and affordability. How do we ensure that there is access and affordability going forward for everyone to benefit from psychedelics? Well, you know, it really depends on which framework we're working under, right? Like, so under the pharmaceutical approach, a lot of people think, oh, that's only oh, pharmaceuticals for the rich and the wealthy. And that's, you know, locking out the marginalized communities. Quite the contrary, if we go through the FDA route and we could get this proven out, insurance should cover it. And so we're actually doing a lot of work talking with the insurance companies to get them ready and educated so that they will cover this when these compounds are approved by the FDA. So through the FDA route, potentially, you know, that's one way where at least people with insurance are, will be able to access these medicines at an affordable price. On the city and state side, there's a lot of different things. I mean, right, right now, even just before I even get into that, ketamine is a psychedelic compound. It's the only FDA approved psychedelic compound. So a lot of clinics right now are doing psychedelic assisted therapy with ketamine. The problem is, is that ketamine, the generic version of ketamine at least, is not covered by insurance because they're using it off-label. So right. since it's off-label and use, insurance so won't cover it. Yeah, yeah, it's very, you. very expensive. Yeah. So, so, so the problem is, is ketamine. It was not. It was approved as an anesthetic, not approved for very various mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. So when you're using a drug product off for a different indication, it's called off-label use, which is totally legal and totally fine. But most insurance companies are not going to co cover off-label use. So hopefully, when you know MDMA gets FDA approved for PTSD, if someone has PTSD, insurance will cover it. When psilocybin gets approved for major depressive disorder and treat-resistant depression, people have those indications, insurance will cover it. So part of the challenge is making sure that we, we cover the, the necessary indications when, these get, when we get these compounds approved so that the insurance will cover it. On the city and state side, it's a hard battle, right? It, it, it's tough. We saw it in the cannabis space. Yeah. It was 
the the you know the wealthy white male that got a lot of the licenses and a lot of the wealth. Now a lot of the states are doing what they can and putting together social equity programs. And some of those social equity programs have proven to be you know somewhat successful. Some of them have been proven to be not be successful at all. Yeah. But I think it's it, it's really you know making sure that we include the marginalized communities as well as the, the the people that these these compounds have really been derived from, some of the re- religious communities that have been using these compounds for, for thousands of years. So when we draft these bills and we draft these, these laws, we just need to make sure that all populations are included and, and they all have a seat at the table to make sure they're all represented. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say it. I know just obviously even like when we were kind of kicking it back to like the ceremonial context, context of things and shamans and this and that, you know, I think for me in a, in a perfect world that there's, there's everything that there's a way for everyone to benefit. And look like the fact that there's still grow laws, thankfully in across the country, right. For psilocybin, for research only, of course, but that they're there. Right. And that, that creates a way to obviously be able to grow your own mushrooms. And then like you're saying, like having this, the drug companies and, and doing it from more of a tested, tried, proven, dosed, you know, taken care of. And then also having a way to not push out the ceremonial aspect of things. Right. And to not say like, thanks, thanks for the mushrooms and the ayahuasca and all this stuff that's been part of the, 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 your heritage and your culture for so long, and then kind of get pushed underground. Like, you know, is there a world where we can, to me, that's the utopia is that whatever avenue that you need to take for healing, whether that's a ceremonial context, whether that's going to a licensed psychotherapist, or whether that's growing your own and having a, an adventure in your own backyard is to me kind of where I think the, the perfect sweet spot is. I know that that's probably very far in the future, but do you ever see that being a possibility? Yeah. I mean, first off, you know, there are some like churches of ayahuasca and some of them have even filed lawsuits against the DEA because there is the freedom to practice your own religion. Right. The, 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 our, our laws around the right to practice your own religion don't really fit very nicely for, you know, churches of ayahuasca and stuff like that and, and different religions that, that, re- that recognize these compounds as, as being sacred. Yep. But yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think that, you know, any framework we roll out, I think, you know, it goes back to like, what should this container look like? And and quite frankly, it probably shouldn't look like the typical clinical model that we see, right? Yeah. I mean, these are compounds that you could have absolutely majestic experiences and having white walls and, and you know, being in front of a doctor with a, with a coat on. <laughs> Is it like really a terrible condition? trip? <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, being, you know, how these, even in Oregon, you know, they're talking a lot about what the, what does this service center really look like? Could it yeah. be, you know, in an outdoor area that's secured and where you could have group therapy sessions? Could it be out in nature? Obviously a service center will be for a particular address. So you can't just go out in nature and do it, but, but could that particular location kind of be more yeah. designed to, you know, provide a, feeling of, of being around nature and, and oneness. So, you know, those are just things that, that we'll have to figure out as, yeah. as we move forward. But there's certainly a part of the conversation in all of the stuff that we're doing is, you know, respecting the, the heritages of, of all these other yeah. people that have been using these compounds for thousands of years. Yeah, very cool. I was thinking with the trip center too, like when you're thinking about the container, also figuring out a way even like to create a, like a group experience. I think there's just healing potential with taking psychedelics, like Look, personally, I've taken psychedelics with friends of mine and 
it, on one hand, yeah, I guess it would have been recreational. On the other hand, it was the most healing, joyful bonding experience to feel so connected to other human beings and to feel like you're kind of vibing on that same frequency is also such an incredible lesson in connectivity, human connection. And I would, you know, and I'm sure they're thinking about it, but just also not just in an ayahuasca context where you're, yeah, you're together, but you're all kind of having your own experience. Your eyes are closed, but also creating um, a space for joy. And I I think there's just so many different ways that healing can take place. And well, actually to to that, to that point, I, so I'm actually out in Colorado right now because there was a, a psychedelic like investor event where companies were presenting and there was one particular company that what they're doing is they have a VR app, virtual reality through like the Oculus goggles, mm-hmm. where their focus is on bringing together people from all over the world that could actually connect and be together in this virtual reality session and bringing them together in a group setting. So obviously that kind of goes in contrast to the whole concept of nature, kind of putting on a pair of goggles right, and right, right, right. that whole debate, do we really want to get VR involved in psychedelic therapy? But on the flip side, it does create that connectedness and how, how, how special would that be if, you know, someone located in Australia is able to sit there with someone in, in America and yeah. you have this group of international people kind of collectively becoming one. It's, it's kind of a special concept to think about. Yeah, I think that sounds dope. I mean, look, because it doesn't have to be one or the other, right? You can still have a a literal group, right? Like if you're in a a community, whether you're in Oregon, right? And you're in Portland and you kind of sign up together and you, and it's like music and fun. And it's like also, and then you integrate, trust me, when you say like, especially if you've never done a psychedelic, even if you're in a group and it's fun, so much is happening, right? Like there's a lot that you're unpacking there and it depends on what you're healing, I guess, right? Like if you're feeling very isolated in the world, Something like that sounds really beautiful. And to connect well, other cultures, like you're saying with VR, this is all, this whole game is a simulation anyway. Why as well just add on the VR part of it and just really create, why not? I mean, we're in a world of expansiveness and, and trying new things and experiencing new things. I think that sounds really cool. Yeah. And I mean, look, sentence, depending on your set and setting, you're going to have a totally different experience. So right. there's no reason why there can't be different options to have different types of experiences. And, and getting right. to the oneness point, one of the areas that I'm kind of passionate about and trying to figure out what a proper, you know, FDA pathway would look like for this is actually psychedelic assisted therapy for, for relationships. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I've, I've personally seen MDMA have profound impacts on people's relationships, right? You have this sense of oneness and understanding and, you know, you drop all judgment and so, which is some, something that, you know, people who have been married for 20 years that are, you know, kind of holding things against one another, that's something that they desperately need. So I think the future hopefully will include, you know, we talked about group therapy, but also just relationship therapy and yep. being able to kind of bring, you know, a relationship back to its foundation and and helping people find the love that they once had for one another. Yeah, I love that. I couldn't agree more. I mean, certainly on my MDMA experiences with with partners, it's definitely like, uh, it's very connecting. I know Rick Doblin, like really, that was his big thing, right? Like he discovered MDMA with his wife and he's like, holy shit, yeah. <laughs> something is happening to my empathy. And it's pretty, it's pretty remarkable. I always, I joked with a friend of mine not too long ago, is like, like you kind of going back to the stereotype, people will have the stereotype of like, I don't know, MDMA or whatever, like ecstasy and, and this and that, which like, whatever. I'm like, I was like, the thing is, you know, they've never tried it because yeah. <laughs> if the whole world 
was dosed with it. I'm not going to say that everybody is. Don't worry, listeners. But I'm just saying, like, if everybody got to experience, like, MDMA at once, I'm like, you have no idea. It's all you're doing is accessing all of your own love and the blocks yeah. that you have created in yourself. And it's just lowering all of the stuff that you've created to protect yourself. It's just an opportunity to feel like that was the biggest amazing thing about MDMA for me was I didn't know how the capacity of how much I could love until I tried ecstasy. And from that experience, I was able to just know by that knowing, knowing that I was able to love that deeply and that openly, I was able to then carry that into my everyday life. No MDMA needed to know, oh, just how deep love can feel. Yeah. And I mean, so we kind of like touched on like set and setting and the set part is your mindset. So it's kind of the preparation and the intent of going into it. But what you're also touching on is the integration side, right? So a lot of people, you know, maybe when they're younger and I didn't really take these when I was younger and I'm actually happy I didn't because I don't know that I would have been able to integrate them into my life as well as I've been able to as, you know, an adult or I'm a little bit more, you know, mentally stable, or I, I don't know what, what to call a little bit more mature, but, but the integration part, you know, when you take MDMA, you have this sense of love and you, you're able to understand what your, your brain and your body is able to access when it comes to love and oneness. A lot of people after that, they just have it down, right? They, they, they release their serotonin and then they let their serotonin go away. But if you do the proper integration and, and you work with people, you can take that love and that oneness that you felt and you accessed during that moment and you can carry it forward in your everyday life. It just, it gives you a glimpse of your body's potential and it's up to you to then integrate it into your life and and carry forward that potential into your everyday, you know, working life. Yeah. Beautifully said. I agree. Same thing with like psilocybin too, that expansive thinking, that, that openness to new ideas and everything. I'm like, that's always there. It's always there. Now, I understand the brain's also like a, an efficiency machine, and that's the beauty of these things is that it's allowing us to create those new pathways. But very cool. My last question for you is actually on the venture capitalist side of things. And that is just what are the different, I think you kind of mentioned it, but the different avenues and uh, opportunities that these venture capitalists are looking at in the psychedelic space? Like what are all the, the ways that their people are getting in? Yeah, I mean, some some of the companies that are investing in the space are very focused on the drug development side. So, you know, just a company taking a particular compound through clinical trials, and, and that costs hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, venture capital and private equity and, you know, investors, family offices, they're very important to rolling this out. I know some people think like money is the devil and we need to keep money away. But the reality is without money and without those investors having some sort of return on their capital, mm-hmm. that money doesn't get deployed and the research doesn't get done. So yep. so really, you know, a lot of companies are focused on the drug development. My particular venture capital fund, we're focused more on the full value chain. So we not only the drug development companies, but we're also investing in the companies that will be producing the the active pharmaceutical ingredients that will be going into that. Most of those companies are located in Canada because of some of the recent changes in the Canadian laws, but we're also investing in the companies that will be delivering those therapies. So those are the clinics that I referenced. These, it's a total paradigm shift where now these um, mental health and behavioral health pharmaceuticals under the psychedelic framework will be delivered at a particular center. And that infrastructure doesn't really completely exist yet. It does in some context, right, with white walls and a clinical setting, but we believe the future, those clinics will look much different. And there's already companies that are getting set up to to basically do that. And then also 
so the, so you have the production, you have the de- drug development, you have the, the clinics that will be delivering it, and then you have like the technologies and the other supporting infrastructure mm. that will help mm. the whole ecosystem. So those are kind of the different buckets that our investment firm places the opportunities in. Yeah, cool. I, I said the same thing. You know, I, I'm of the, I'm always about good abundance, as I like to say, like where there's, you know, as long as there is that like fairness equity, I, I say that a lot about just the scientific research. I'm like, look, we wouldn't be where we are with psychedelics without that, you know, without yep. the research that's happening and without the money that's going into it and all these things. So again, like there's, there's nothing, there's nothing gray. There's nothing black and white about anything like this. And I think this, we live in a, we live in a three-dimensional world where, where we need things. And we also just the sheer money that it takes to produce and to get it to people. So yeah, I think it's, I think it's great. And I love that you're kind of working on finding balance within that, with your advocacy and, and figuring out what is the best container to brave new worlds. Obviously, hopefully the utopian type, not the dystopian type. I know that book is uh, dystopian, but yeah, it's exciting. And thank you. Thank you for being here. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Always happy to talk psychedelics at any time. Awesome. Dustin, thank you. Thank you again. Where can people, by the way, find you on socials, online? Where can they reach out if they want to have some psychedelic questions, maybe get into the space? Um, yeah, my email address is Dustin at eaterinvestments.com. That's D-U-S-T-I-N at I-T-E-R investments.com. So yeah, if you want to get in touch with me, feel free to reach out. Cool. Awesome. And for everyone, as always, trip on this. <laughs>